Hey there, this is Tim. Thanks for listening to Better Yet. An important bit of context for this interview is that this episode was released on April 1st, which here in the United States of America is a holiday known as April Fool's Day, where we Americans like to play pranks on each other, and I hilariously posted this as an interview with Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls. So, listening to the introduction, you'd otherwise be thinking, why does he keep talking about Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls instead of Chris Gethard? Well, now you know. All right, on with the show. Hey, all right, and welcome to Better Yet. I'm Tim Chris, your host. Better Yet is a conversation about music, and my conversation this week is with Johnny Resnick. Holy shit, the Goo Goo Dolls, one of my favorite bands of all time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Nomni for our intro music, Marcus Nuccio for our graphics. Each week you can see all those on our website, betteryetpod.com. I invite you all to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. You can follow us on Bandcamp, betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com. How does this happen? How does he do it? All it takes is a dream, my friends. All it takes is a dream. Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls, my first favorite band, is on better yet. Well, let me tell you about my current favorite band, Rat Boys. It's a big day for them, too. In celebration of their 10-year anniversary, they re-recorded their first EP. And that is out today. It's called Happy Birthday, Rat Boy. Rat Boys started as a duo of Julia and Dave, and with time, evolved into the four-piece with Marcus, that's our Marcus, on drums, and Sean Newman on bass. The four of them re-recorded that EP together. It sounds stellar. I interviewed Julia for a zine that accompanies the physical release of the EP. Do check that out. Also, I will be the guest on Rat Boy's virtual tour. You can watch that live on Saturday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Check that out at watchrapboys.com. I'm sure that we'll be talking about this Johnny Resnick interview. Let me tell you a story about a kid from Neshanic Station, New Jersey. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Goo Goo Dolls were the intersection between the music that was in my house growing up and the music that was on the radio I remember hearing them on tapes that my dad would make, songs like Cause You're Gone and Hey. And I remember when Name broke through, they were playing that on the radio on the school bus in fourth grade. And I didn't even know it was the same band. Name didn't sound like the other songs. Come to find out that mere months before, my dad saw them at Maxwell's in Hoboken. He catches Johnny Resnick in the crowd and he's like, Hey! You love the replacements? They toured together. 
Paul Westerberg wrote the lyrics to We Are the Normal. My dad's like, hey, you like the replacements? I named my son Tim. Johnny Resnick, not impressed. Little did they know how impressive I would become. Here's what I'll say about the Goo Goo Dolls, though. Because a couple years later, Iris came out. And that song just sent them off into a stratosphere from which they'd never return. I was 11, 12 years old, and that's when I went back, and I listened to everything. And when they hit their stride, which for me is Hold Me Up, Superstar Car Wash, A Boy Named Goo, those three records, one of the best three album runs of all time, those records changed my life. Not only those songs and the way they sound, but the story that those records tell of this sloppy punk band who go from pretty good to great to outstanding. And the development, too, of Johnny Resnick as a songwriter. He's got a couple songs on the first couple records, and then he just starts getting better and better. And it becomes this little underdog journey that I wanted to share with anyone who would listen. Uh, Brings us to today, I suppose. God, I'm on one today. We have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Podcast, where we've got some very fun audio-visual programming available to you, including my weekly top five. We talked Emmy Lou Harris this week. We also have conversations with Dave Garwacki of If You Make It, Kevin Duquette of Top Shelf Records, Bob Bielma of Shinobu and Fat and Funky, and a whole bunch of extras from the Life's Work podcast about Laura Stevenson's Sit Resist. Plus, we had a weekly contribution from our guests. We got covers. Lisa Kusami of Oceanator covering Rancid's old friend. Tony Molina and Rose Melberg doing 14 Cheerleader Cold Front by GBV. Drunken Angel by Lucinda Williams as performed by Slaughter Beach Dog. Laura Stevenson doing Can You Please Crawl Out Your Window by Bob Dylan. We got a Thou Live Set playlist from Lucy Dacus. Sarah Tudson of Illuminati Hotties. Lots of demos from Anika Pyle, Mikey Erg, Sophia Verbilla of Harmony Woods. You can hear those only on our Patreon, patreon.com slash better yet podcast. And this week, we got Johnny Resnick reading from his joke notebook. It's kind of a lot to explain, but it's very, very funny. You can pledge for $3 a month. That'll give you access to all the bonus audio and visual content that we're posting weekly. If you pledge $10 a month, you'll get all that. Plus, every three months, we'll be sending out some merchandise we did some custom printed notebooks finishing work right now on a zine that's about joan of arc elephants geometry it's on a cosmic plane stoked to get those finished up and printed now with our patreon we split the revenue from this podcast evenly between the show the guests and organizations chosen by our guests guests are the reason you're listening each week and we pay our guests for their time We're paying Johnny Resnick for taking part in this podcast. We're also using the conversation as a chance to send some money to the Homeless Black Trans Women Fund. This organization is working to help support a community of folks living in Atlanta 
if you'd like to support them and support the show, go to patreon.com slash podcast. All right. My guest this week is Johnny Resnick. And I mean, to tell you the truth, I already said all that needs to be said about Johnny Resnick and the Goo Goo Dolls. This is an interview that I've been prepping for for 25 years. So I actually didn't do much prep for the interview itself. In fact, kind of took the opportunity to spend some time listening to Chris Gethard's new podcast, New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World is a wonderful podcast hosted by Chris and his hometown friends, Mike D and Bonaduce, talking about the strange and beautiful state of New Jersey. It's fun. It's hilarious. It's really lovely listening to three people who have several lifetimes worth of rapport. It's an exciting new project for my dude, Chris Gethard. And talk about someone who's had projects. There was the Chris Gethard Show, which was on the air from 2011 to 2018. First as a cable access show on the Manhattan Neighborhood Network. And eventually on cable on Fusion and True TV. He's got three comedy albums out on Don Giovanni Records. One of those being Career Suicide, a special that he made for HBO. Which, if you haven't seen... I can't recommend it enough. I don't know of too many pieces of art that have touched me the way Career Suicide did. I talked to Chris for Life's Work. That's a conversation that I really, really cherished. And I'd love to talk to him again on this podcast. But anyway, here's me and Johnny Resnick. It's a good time. Well, I think there is like, um, I do feel like there's been more and more this kind of acknowledgement that people who grew up in New Jersey grew up in a, a slightly, like, I don't know, a more insane way than other areas of the country, but definitely its own unique brand of insanity. Mm -hmm. Like, I know Midwestern kids who have stories about like stealing farm threshers in the middle of the night. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that's insane too, but... I think the particular, I mean, that class action park documentary really blew it open. And, you know, like a, a lot of people know, like the Jersey punk scene is, is this very fruitful and beautiful, but kind of like notoriously chaotic, like it's basement shows and bowling alleys. Mm -hmm. And like, um, I think there's just a chaos to New Jersey that, that people do like examining and that Jersey people like celebrating. Yeah. I feel like it comes around every like. 10 years or so to something like brings New Jersey back into the cultural conversation. And 10 years ago it was Jersey shore. And maybe now we're seeing like a slight resurgence. Well, it's funny, right? Cause it's like, I feel like it's anything that comes out about New Jersey. It tends to live on an extreme. Mm -hmm. It's like Springsteen who, you know, in his time obviously took over. And then there's also been like the past, you know, since like the hold steady probably right that resurgence of people being like yeah Springsteen's actually awesome like mm -hmm. it's rebuilt and it's like you get his like poetry and everything and um you know the the romanticize like I said like I think so many people romanticize the New Brunswick scene and that whole lineage from bouncing souls to lifetime to the ergs screaming females like 
that. But then the other side of it is like Jersey Shore and Real Housewives and the things that are just held up as like held up for mockery. Mm-hmm. And you sit there and you go, everybody sort of jokes or messes with us about how Jersey is the Real Housewives. Jersey's Jersey Shore and MTV. And it's like, well, how come when you guys want to make fun of us, it's so convenient to forget that we bring you some of the best music, some of the best food, some of the best stories, Sopranos. Like, mm-hmm. we were also the heart and soul of the greatest television show of all time in many people's account. Like, yeah, how about that part? You know, like, you don't give us – people tend to forget the like the 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 things that come out that are just these totally unique, heartfelt pieces of art. And instead, they're like, let's pump our fists with our razor-sharp frosted tip hair jersey. It's like, all right. So we celebrate all of it on the new, on the new podcast. Well, I think, I think the jig is up. I'm not, in fact, speaking to Johnny Resnick. I wasn't sure if you knew. I, I was trying to figure out how to break it to you. Because um, I felt really bad because I, I could sense that you were very excited. Like before we started recording, you were thanking me for all the music I made in the past. I said in my head, I'm like, how do I, how do I explain? I'm not a member of the Goo Goo Dolls. Well, Never have been. <laughs> I, I do have some questions that I, I think might work though. Speaking to you, uh, that were for the guy from the Goo Goo Dolls yeah. that I might be able to answer. Yeah. yeah. Who does your hair? Oh. Uh, great question. Generally, whichever barber is closest and has availability, but I will tell you, I was staying for five weeks with my parents in Florida and I I went down there and I got uh, the worst haircut of my entire life. That is no exaggeration. Really? Yeah. God bless her. I, I, I went to this haircutter place that both of my parents go to, but the guy who usually does my dad's hair wasn't there. So I just picked another random person and it was very clear pretty quickly she only does women's haircuts because uh-huh. um, I said, you know, if you could cut it with a number three straight across the back. And she said, oh, I don't use the clippers. She's like, I just use scissors. Is that okay? I was like, well, not – I mean, I'll, not really, no. Like I I need my hair cut like the way I get my hair cut. And then she was like, okay, hold on, hold on, and went and got them and then clearly did not know how to use them. And one of my uh, sideburns was uh, – visibly, I would say, close to half an inch longer than the other. <laughs> this is a haircut I paid money for. I didn't notice till I got in the car and then I was... You remember that feeling when you're like in high school and you do something really embarrassing and you just know... You know other people have witnessed it and are have knowledge of it. And even if they're not saying anything, it's just that like teenager shame mm-hmm. that feels like uh, like almost like steam boiling within you. It was that. I felt that again when I looked in the mirror and saw it. Like this is the worst haircut I've ever had, so I don't know if Johnny Resnick would have said the same. Resnick, right? I, I never knew much about the go- the Goo Goo Dolls. Yeah, it's Resnick, Resnick, but it's Polish, Resnick. so it's like R Z E Z N I. Okay, but it is okay. Resnick. Yeah, so I don't know how he would have answered that question, but that's my answer. This is in fact Chris Gethard. Thank you for uh, helping me fulfill my dream of pretending that Johnny Resnick was on my talk show. <laughs> A joy, a joy. And for anybody who's brokenhearted right now, apologies 
but at least you're at least you're talking to someone who's used to uh, disappointing people, <laughs> and therefore it will not phase me if they're mad. So, I guess just since I spent the space of the podcast that I normally spend introdu- introducing my guests, I'll say I'll say this to you to uh, to help the listeners at home. You're someone who you seem to like your your work comes into my life at very specific and pertinent times. I remember being at the fest and I was the fest in, in Gainesville and I was six months sober, you know, at this punk festival that's sponsored by beer. And I had heard about your show and then I saw that you were doing stand up, and I went in knowing very little about you. Um, but it was a nice break from everything. It was in a sweaty show, and I was also kind of like, "Why did I come here?" <laughs> and you told the Batman story that oh, is in... later wound up on the HBO special. Mm-hmm. Well, that's serendipitous for you to see that one. Yeah, the punchline of your therapist saying, "You're an alcoholic." I was like, "Yes." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would get out of control. It's funny. I get that a lot. I'm um, I, I I sometimes bang my head against the wall that I'm 20 years in and I haven't I haven't really had anything that's like a mainstream thing I'm known for. And many days I'm very confident in that and know that it was sort of by design. And then other days I really worry about that and have self questioning. But what it does lead to is a lot of stories like that, mm-hmm. like a lot of people going. You know, I, I was watching HBO in the middle of the night and saw your depression thing and I was up because I'm a depressed insomniac and like I hear things like that, you know, pretty frequently and the old public access show too. I, that show has been canceled for three years now and I still get messages on like a, I would say a weekly basis from someone who's like, I just found the old show and it's really helping me with where I'm at right now. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. You and I clicked on that one as well. But Fest is not a place for a recently sober person. Fest at night. It it, it goes after a certain hour and I feel like it almost looks like footage of what you'd see in like... um, Like when you see like an Eastern European nation that falls into... Like when the Ukraine was being annexed by Russia and then you see that ground level footage and it's just like... (laughs) <laughs> mayhem it really does kind of look like that after after the bars close and all these punks are just on the streets <laughs> sloppy getting slices of pizza the other one um was i interviewed mike Dierg. um i guess when i was a few months into doing this podcast and he he talked about career suicide and i was like you know i think he's actually like doing that in Chicago right now, Mikey's like, like go to it. You really should. And told me after the interview too, like, you got to go to that. Oh, that's awesome. We got let in the person that I that I went with. We were the last two people to go in, and I mean, just waves of affirmation being able to see that. And was that was that the one at the Annoyance Theater or at Talia Hall? I think it was. I think it was at the Annoyance Maybe. Theater. Oh, nice. Yeah, I remember that being a decent show. So I'm glad you were at that one. Glad you were at that one. 
Um, do you have people like that? Like people that like come into your, I mean, we talked about Laura being a really serendipitous artist for you. Yeah. I, I feel like, um, Laura has had that effect on me. Jeff, actually, Jeff Rosenstock is somebody who I would say like, um, on a recurring basis, there have been times where. Uh, he and I have linked up at exact moments where it feels like, okay, like I remember like one in particular where when we, when our TV show went to cable, the network was real happy because they were like, we actually got like a corporate sponsor that wants to sponsor your show. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And they're like, yeah, they want to sponsor the music portion of the show, uh-huh. AT&T. And I'm like, well, we specifically book bands that via like the fundamental ethos is rejecting mm-hmm. corporate, uh, you know, rejecting corporate values. This is going to be tough. And I actually, who do I call? I pick up the phone and I call Jeff, right? Yeah. Um, and then as far as like artists who I'm not friends with, I'll say sometimes it's with bands that I had a passing interest in, in the early days and who then I rediscover as an adult and there's more depth to it. Like, Billy Bragg, there was a huge mm. version of that with me where I liked him when I was a kid and I had that Back to Basics record and then yeah. got older and and, and uh, just really went down a rabbit hole where I realized like, oh, I was not young enough. I, I, I was not old enough rather to like, I wasn't world traveled enough or, 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 or aware enough to understand the full scope of what he's speaking of. And it's like, oh, he's been saying stuff that speaks to the world that I want to live in for 40 years. Um, yeah. I've been actually during the pandemic, strangely, not strangely cause it's a great album, but I actually, um, so I went to Rutgers. I moved to New Brunswick in 1998. Mm-hmm. And if you're like a nerd who knows, uh, the new, new, new Jersey music scenes, history lifetime was wrapping up in 1997. And yeah. I remember being like a local punk kid and they were just like a band that played a million shows. And mm-hmm. I always remember Bill's with them and the other two bands. I feel like I always saw Bill's Lifetime, IDK, Worthless. Like those were yeah. the bands I always... So to me, they were like a, a, a good local band that played a ton of shows. And I've been aware over the years of like, oh no, Lifetime has actually grown and grown in, in people's minds and, and, and hearts and uh, Jersey's Best Dancers I've just been obsessively listening to. in so the good. It's so good, but I'm like, I was a New Brunswick kid in 1998 and was like, oh, Lifetime's pretty good. And now I'm 40 in 2021, and I'm like, you know what's a great album? Like, I, I miss the boat. My wife makes fun of me. Like, I will oftentimes wait years after something has hype mm-hmm. to check it out. And I don't know why, if that's like some sort of elitism on my part or if I just get tired of dealing, dealing with people. Like, like, for example, like, I've never listened to that Arcade Fire album that won the Grammy. Uh-huh. And not because I don't want to, but just because I'm like, I'll get around to it someday. And, like, I keep hearing how great it is, and that's good. But I, I guess I'll just wait a couple years, and at some point I'll come across it. So mm-hmm. that was that for me. I had a similar experience with Jawbreaker. I had a – I remember I owned, like – if I still had this, I could sell it on eBay for a ton of money. I had, like, one of the seven inches on Shredder Records. Oh, yeah. And – uh busy and equalized were the songs on it, I think. And, uh, Mm. so I liked them as a kid and I knew them. And and then I remember once taking this road trip in the middle of the night and I was, I was, uh, in a real bad place doing a lot of soul searching and had like, uh, I think it was bivouac 
in my car that I don't know that I'd ever really listened to it. Somebody burned it for me and uh, listened to that all night driving by myself through upstate New York and went down that rabbit hole. They were a big one. So, um, it's a great record, yeah. too. Some long songs, yeah. too, that you can just get lost in. Yeah, turn your turn your brain off while you're driving up through the Adirondack Mountains mm-hmm. while you, when you're like trying to figure out why you feel so lonely in your pursuits. Like that's a pretty good album for that. So those are some of the musicians. And I'm trying to think if there's other people who kind of loop back in, you know, a lot of it is like comic books. Yeah. Every few years I'll kind of dive back into comic books and find some stuff that I missed the first time around. Or I I text a friend who's really up on it and be like, what's the new stuff I should be reading. I find great comfort in, in those um, characters quite often. And that's been happening since like third grade where uh go through that. Wrestling, every few years wrestling will yeah. reignite in a way that really inspires me. And, and again, the older perspective where I'm like thinking of them more as like actors and artists and even comedians sometimes and uh, on top of being athletes. And yeah, those, those things come to mind. And then every few years I rewatch the movie Gross Point Blank because that's... That's I've that's been another that thing. That's giant. That's oh. Cusack, right? Yeah, he's a Chicago guy, isn't he? Like, yeah, he's kind of one of those weird guys that like shows up at coffee shops wearing a do rag, and that's what I've heard. <laughs> like, he'll he'll be in a bar at closing time and maybe hit on your girlfriend. Like, he hears stories like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. But that movie's great. I'll have to watch. I ramble. You remember this from the Laura interviews? <laughs> I ramble a lot. Apologies. That's all good, but. Yeah, like 15 minutes ago when you mentioned Lifetime, I was like, yeah. <laughs> that, that back-to-back of How We Are and theme song from a New Brunswick Basement show it cannot be topped. That, if you could take her place. Bah, yeah. Bah, bah. I got to say, like, Rutgers, my time at Rutgers was, was without exaggeration, the hardest stretch of my life Mm -hmm. it's also i was just talking with a friend of mine from those days back then uh this morning we were like dming one of my old roommates who he went to Rutgers, and he's a fascinating guy um in many different ways but he was saying he's like growing up where i did he's like i was in west orange and i knew this journalist before he started and he's like and i used to like like we knew humble beginnings and the Gabe supporter was starting midtown and their house was right down the street from uh-huh. us. And then I lived with Chris Gethard before his comedy took off. And then I knew this person and that person. And it was all like new Brunswick, but um, it was so dark for me. And, and that lifetime record, hearing that lyric and turnpike gates of like, uh, I don't want to fight with you if I can't be the one to have you. Mm-hmm. And then specifically that line of, of, uh, I memorized the lines your eyes made with every was every, every squint you shot my way. Squint you shot my mm. way. I'm like, there was. It was such a dark time for me at Rutgers, and specifically there was this one girl, and, and we have settled it all. But she and I would both say we fucked each other's minds up mm-hmm. so bad with our behavior surrounding each other, and. It's tough with with those lyrics, right? Because you have to you have to actually read along with them because they're indecipherable. Completely, to the ear. completely, yeah. And I was figuring those lyrics out, and I was like, "This is making me feel like being in fucking New Brunswick, just 
stomping out of this house because I don't want to be in dumb fights anymore. And because me and this girl cannot fucking figure out what we mean to each other. And it, I would never say she ruined my life. That's not fair. But just to feel like my life is fucked up. And mm-hmm. I'm obsessing over this person in the middle of it to try to be the savior, which is not fucking fair. And she's playing her own games with me. <laughs> and that's not fucking fair. And we both know it. And fuck this town, man. Like, it's really... It's really speaking to me during this pandemic. Yeah. But if you want me, just call out. Hey, boy. <laughs> like, what a good there. way to end. What a good way to end of like, hey, after all this like vomiting up of how I have to get out of this situation, this toxic situation we're putting each other through. Like, Also, though, just feel free if you need me. I'll happily get sucked back into this. And yeah. yeah, I think I think those lyrics I think I think that song and new and the theme song from New Brunswick Basement in particular, it's like, yeah, that that was that was that town to me. And what an again to loop it back to New Jersey. It's a really amazing thing about New Jersey artists, which is and this goes for Springsteen, a lot of the punk bands from here. It's so cool to see them embraced on a broader cultural level. But a lot of Jersey artists will kind of put specifics or Easter eggs in their work that if you're from Jersey, mm-hmm. tear your, like watching The Sopranos with someone from North Jersey, I think is very annoying to people who aren't because you're just sitting there, you're going, oh, that's the corner of New Dutch Lane and Passaic Avenue. Oh, I've been there a million times. Oh, that's the Wild Bird Center. That's up in West Caldwell. Like my mom, all the references are just boom, 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 boom. My mom's from New Providence, so every every time with the intro, there's that like that one uh, one one of the driving shots. She's, I got a flat tire there. She says it every yeah. time. All <laughs> the drive safely things, those big tanks off the turnpike. Yeah. Like it's just. Um, nice it's nice i just moved home it's nice to be home and in thinking about your questions about artists i'm like i wonder if other people are feeling it during this like super dark year of like i want things that feel not just like a taste of home but that feel smaller Mm -hmm. that like feel like they're kind of of me and of where i'm from and feel like accessible and feel like i can reach out and touch them and Honestly, it's a lot of stuff. One of the one of my favorite things about listening to New Jersey is the world and listening to you and Mike D and Bonaduce talk is that you three are so locked into that fucking Essex County <laughs> dialect <laughs> that it's it's very real and it's very nice to just be inside of a conversation that doesn't feel as aware of the microphones it feels very in a living room i'm I'm so glad you say that and it's um it's been such a joy because i was so lucky and i think a lot of people probably feel this way but i don't know i wonder if you feel since we're talking about it through the lens of New Jersey, like Jersey's this place where everyone's on top of each other all the time. It's so densely packed in North Jersey in particular. And it just means that like things move a mile a minute and there's so much trouble to get into and so much like kind of adventure to be had. Like Mm -hmm. when you get your license, it's like just everything's right there. And people have often asked me like, Oh, who's the funniest person you've ever met? And, uh, 
they mean in the context of me having been in the world of comedy. And certainly there are people I can point to where I can talk about things like, like Bobby Moynihan's one of my good friends. Like mm-hmm. watch him in a live setting, watch Horatio Sands in a live setting. You will never see a room go more ape shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and there's people I could name from like the current day, like these people insane. I mean, Meg Stalter who came out of Chicago, like watch Meg. like you, it doesn't even make sense how funny some of these people are. But the real answer is like, if you want to know who the funniest people are in my life ever come to a cookout, where a bunch of my friends from high school and college get together. Yeah. And I mean that honestly. Mm-hmm. It's my brother and it's the friends from that era. The way these guys can tell stories, and I, I say guys because, you know, I grew up a doofy guy and these are the guy friends from that mm-hmm. era, not to be misogynistic. You sit around in a backyard with these guys when everybody, not me, has had a couple beers and the stories start flying. It makes me laugh harder than pretty much any comedy I see on TV, any professional comedian I've been around and doing the show now. And it's like, yeah, like just hopefully I'm glad to hear it feels like guys hanging out because like Mike D is not a comedian. Bonaduce is literally a card carrying union construction worker mm-hmm. who works on he's currently working on a project at the Newark airport. Like it's not it's not any effort to be entertainment. It's just like. Yeah, these are the guys who have always been the funniest guys in my life. Let's uh let's let's get that on record. Let's get that on record. I love that. So those are those are West Orange folks. Are you, are your folks living yeah. in Florida or are they still in West Orange? They snowbirds? They they snowbird some sometimes in Florida, sometimes upstate New York. Oh, okay. My my uh my whole family. I mean, I was one of these kids like very Irish Catholic style. My my dad's Parents lived across the street. His sister lived around the corner. Mm-hmm. My uncle married the girl across the street. So that's my that's my Aunt Karen. And then the other side of my family, my grandparents lived three blocks away. My Aunt Rose lived around the other corner. And she was the one who just moved out of West Orange probably two or three years ago. And that was my last, uh, last relative in West Orange to leave. And so wild to think about because... I mean, my parents met at the Catholic church three blocks from my house. My dad's mom was a teacher there. Mm-hmm. My Irish immigrant grandparents on the other side were there like multiple times a week. And I think of it and I'm like, man, my parents moved out of West Orange in, I think, 1998. They moved to another town in Essex County and... For my mom, my mom was born in 1948, for 50 years of her life, pretty much the entirety of of her world was like a one mile square area in the down the hill neighborhood of West Orange, New Jersey. Wow. And that because so many of her relatives still lived there. Um, Every wedding I ever went to, Our Lady of Lord's Church, every funeral, Our Lady of Lord's Church, and then up, you know, go up to the Gates of Heaven Cemetery at in East Hanover. And that was until my parents moved when I was 18. Their lives, our whole lives, every grandparent, cousins, aunts, uncles, all within five, six blocks of each other. And I mean, uh, I mean, my dad literally lived in the house across the street from the house where he grew up. Like the world was very, very small for a very long time. Wow. And, and your, your brother's, Older than you, right, Craig? Yeah. My brother's two and a half years older than me. He lives in Philadelphia. 
He's a, a very funny and fantastically strange mind. <laughs> and again, very often people say, who's the funniest person you know? I go, it's just my brother, Greg. He is a chaotic, if it was D&D, he'd be a chaotic neutral. Uh-huh. Good heart, a lot of chaos. <laughs> He's a funny motherfucker. And he was kind of like your gateway, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I guess when... I'm trying to pack as much as I can into into this interview, Chris. So I'm not making it easy because I <laughs> over talk. I'll try to can it. I'm sorry. Well, let me. You you used to watch wrestling together, and I've heard you say uh-huh. that that Andy Kaufman is your favorite comedian. Uh, yeah. You you ever watched that? Were you watching that special on Comedy Central that they used to air? It was actually my gateway into comedy. Yeah. Because um, Comedy Central, you bring it up when you go, yeah, the one Comedy Central you mm-hmm. because they aired it so much twice a week, yeah. and I loved wrestling. My brother showed me the cool wrestling, and then my brother also like he was just way too young to know about all the stuff he knew about. He knew about the Ramones way too young, and WFMU Radio was in North Jersey, very like influential and cool. Mm-hmm. Like, and he'd say, "Oh, you got to watch this guy Andy Kaufman," and. The way he got me to watch him was like, oh, it's about wrestling. And I watched it. I'm like, this is so weird and funny. But now all of a sudden I'm like really young and Comedy Central's on. And it's not just him. Like now I just have that station on all the time. And it's, they used to play just endless reruns of the Eddie Murphy era of SNL, which is actually, you go back and watch that stuff. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, So many stand-up clips. I mean, the young ones, Mystery Science Theater, you know, oh, yeah. 3000. Like, they just played a lot of stuff then on the kids in the hall constantly. Mm-hmm. So my brother was just like, yeah, you like wrestling? There's this comedy wrestling guy. Check it out. It's cool. And I mean, we were young, young. And then all of a sudden, I'm sitting there going, oh, MST3K, kids in the hall. Yeah. I'm in like fourth, fifth grade, you know? Oh, that had to be blowing your mind. Blowing my mind absolutely blowing my mind you know uh he just my brother he's always i say it to this day he's always had if my brother gets in touch with me and tells me like oh i saw this thing nobody's talking about it i don't get why it's amazing Mm -hmm. 90 percent of the time it blows up like one of the funniest conversations but we can drive each other nuts my brother and i and here's a good example of him driving me nuts he goes Dude, I've been catching episodes of this show. It's called Broad City. Uh-huh. It's these two girls. He's like, this show's going to be big. He's like, I don't think anybody's talking about it yet. It's going to be big. And if you remember, Broad City became, like, yeah. first of all, hilarious show, but meant a lot to people. And I think, like, culturally, people are going to point to it as, like, especially in terms of women being the unapologetic leads of a comedy show. Mm-hmm. It's an important show. My brother's telling me this going on and on. I'm just listening to him and I'm like, I'm like, I'm so glad you think that. Also, I'm on that show, Greg. <laughs> He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, Greg, I play Alana's boss on that show. He's like, oh, I haven't seen any of the episodes with me yet. I haven't been watching them in order. I just catch them when I catch them. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm in like maybe like a third of the episodes of the first season, like a decent amount. He's like, oh, that's great. I can't wait to see you. <laughs> He like went on for like five minutes about the brilliance of this show. Like two minutes in, I'm like, 
he has no idea I'm in the show. <laughs> he has no idea that I'm like not one of the core people, but like the next layer, the next layer of of being on that show. But yeah, my brother's always, and I mean, since he was a kid, he understood that Howard Stern was brilliant mm-hmm. and not just shock stuff. He used to grab me. We lived, you know, New York Media Market, grab me. Dude, stay up late tonight. Channel 9, Howard Stern's got his own talk show now, and it's on Channel 9. Watching it, staying up late. He just always knew where the cool stuff was, and I'm, I'm, I've, I've always benefited from that greatly. And he, he, he get you into punk, too? You... Uh, obviously. Uh-huh. I mean, like, 100%. Um, he, like I said, WFMU Radio is based out of East Orange. We were in West Orange, and if anybody out there knows WFMU, like... It, if you are an underground person, it can take on great. It can. It's a pretty big deal, you know. It's a yeah. pretty big deal. So, he just found it on the dial and locked into it, and was really young listening to that, and that brought some punk into our lives. And then, remember, he was he was still in probably elementary school and listened to the Ramones, and then one of the transformative nights of my life, I was in eighth grade. And Mike D, who's now co-host on the show, we're actually about to put out a, 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 an episode about the, the music scene that will talk in depth about this. But my brother goes, oh, Mike D rented a, a church basement up the hill on Pleasant Valley Way, and there's going to be a bunch of bands. Come with me. And it was funny. We had like the love-hate thing, the Irish brothers born a little too close together thing, me and my brother. Yeah. But when it was stuff like that that he knew... Be like, come on, come with me. Uh-huh. Sometimes he'd be like, stay away from my friends, you little idiot. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> but we went. I'll never forget the three local bands, One Nature, Missing Children, Felix Frump. It was the first time I'd ever seen live music was in a church basement. And the musicians were, you know, some of them are 16 years old. And they got like seven inches pressed and T-shirts. And I'm like, it was just... Uh, yeah, it was just one of the absolutely life-defining nights of my life. And I, and I kind of knew it then. Yeah. Kind of knew it. I think a lot of us, right? When you go to that first actual DIY show, you kind of feel like, oh, this is, some people are going to leave tonight and they're going to go, oh, that was a fun thing. Mm-hmm. And then some of us are going to go, oh, I think my DNA just got rewired a little bit. And that night was that for me. Yeah. It's like seeing that merchandise on the table. It's like, well, how, where did that come from? And especially because it's like, these are kids. Yeah. That's a t- that's not some t-shirt that they like faked. Like they, they made a design. They, they went to some place that prints t-shirts and that place did it for, like took them seriously and didn't tell them to get lost. Like this is a record. Like my dad has a record collection. Mm. It's like Beatles records and Stones records and the Shaft soundtrack and the West Side Story soundtrack, which my dad loves so much. (laughs) And these kids have a record and they're just like kids from Nutley. They're kids from Boundbrook. Mm -hmm. They're a couple years older than me and they have this stuff. Nobody tells you to scram. Like nobody tells you this isn't for people like you. I guess it can just be for people like us. Mm Mm-hmm to make stuff and do stuff and might be a cliche thing to, to say about the DIY scene at this point. But in 1997, that was like, it was a pretty revolutionary realization to me of like, yeah, there's a lot of rules 
And only some of them are real. <laughs> you can find your back door around a lot of the other rules. They're arbitrary. They've been installed for other people's ease and comfort. Mm -hmm. Like teachers tell me things have to be a certain way. My parents tell me things have to be a certain way. I'm like, no, I guess they don't. I guess they don't. Because these like goofballs from Nutley have t-shirts that they made. It really made me feel that. Yeah. So when you were in school, um, were you get were you getting into comedy at Rutgers? Yeah, I actually, I can point to one teacher from my high school who I think there were some who were there were some who I have no opinion on. They did their job. Some who I actually look back, where I go, "Wow, you were detrimental to my self esteem." <laughs> and then one. Um, who I, I'm still in touch with her. I got back in touch with her career suicide. I invited her. She taught the drama classes and, and she pulled me aside. I had been doing the school plays and stuff, but I was like, this is weird to be singing and dancing. It's not what I, I want to be on stage. I can feel that. I like being funny, but I don't know that I need to be like singing songs. Mm -hmm. This is weird. She pulled me aside. She's like, take my drama class next year. And I was like, I, I don't know if this acting stuff's for me. And she's like, I'll make it worth it for you. I was like, this is cool. Like she's, teachers don't like do that. And she made it all about improv that semester, like way more than she usually would. I later came to understand. And like she had an open door and she had a, a little office off the side of the stage where she taught the drama classes and, and I was welcome to drop in there. And she pretty explicitly said to me, you know, you're kind of a wise ass. And I think she could see that it was driven by some anger and it was driven definitely by a sense of defensiveness, putting up with a lot of bullying and stuff like that. Mm. And she said to me outright, like, you know, you're sort of a wise ass, but if you stop being a little punk about it, like, it's actually a very good thing. Like, you're talented. Like, right. you're making jokes in class and getting sent to the office for it. Why don't you stop making those jokes in the other classes and just make them here? Because I'm into it. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you how to do it in a way that's productive. It was so cool of her. And then I went to Rutgers. And the funny thing, so, and this was before improv had become like a national joke where people just relentlessly mock it. Right. It was still mm -hmm. a very underground thing at the time. This is before the UCB even had a theater in New York, for example. Um, so I, I, any college I looked at, I made sure they had an improv troupe because I was like, that shit made me wake up. Doing that in her classes made me feel awake. People were responding. I had confidence. I was good at it. Instinctively, I was like, this is cool. Mm. Started watching Whose Line Is It Anyway obsessively. <laughs> That's what you could find back then. <laughs> so I made sure I had an improv group. And then at Rutgers, I was like, I'm trying out for this improv group. This is going to be my thing. I want to do comedy so bad. So I made my email address, improv at <laughs> eden.ruckers.edu. I don't know if people still have those college email addresses now, but that used to be a thing. And at Rutgers, once you picked your email address, you couldn't change it, which is why it was so unfortunate that when I auditioned for the improv troupe, they soundly rejected me <laughs> twice, <laughs> two semesters in a row. So I'm so depressed. And then people, what's your email address? Improv at Rutgers. <laughs> like, oh, are you the improv troupe? I'm like, nah. <laughs> why not? If, you like, if you're that into the comedy thing, why aren't you in the improv group? Not up to me. It was so depressing. And then uh, I finally got in and... and uh, uh, they, uh, one of my very, very best friends to this day, I wound up living with him for years in New York, was the guy who was the director who rejected me. And I still give him shit about it. 
And he still is like, your auditions were terrible. You were weird. You creeped us out. You say a lot of dark stuff. I'm like, that worked out well. Have you seen my HBO special? It's like, yes, I know. It worked out well. I made a mistake. Sorry. It corrected itself. Can we shut up about it? It's 1999. Move on. You're like the improv version of the, you know, the story about Michael Jordan not making his high school basketball team the first time he tried out. A little bit. I mean, they kept smacking me down. It was making me very angry in a way that was motivated. And, and then that, that was rocky at the start, as you would imagine. And then I, when it clicked for me, it got really good really fast. And in this very de- depressed era of my life, um, it was keeping me afloat. So I knew that summer I didn't want to stop because I'm like, this comedy thing's the only thing making me feel alive. And it's New Brunswick. New Brunswick is a depressing place, despite any romanticization of it. And one of the best things about New Brunswick is that it's very easy to leave because of their train station. Mm -hmm. So I was I was a kid going to New York. I had not really spent much time in New York. I was scared of it, but I found uh, the UCB Theater back then was just this brand new theater inside a strip club that Rudy Giuliani shut down. And it was underground and nobody had gotten a job out of it yet. And I walk in, I go, this feels exactly like the fucking church basement. Yeah. This feels like the VFW halls, the American Legion halls. This feels like getting to New Brunswick and going into basements or going to the Melody Bar. Like, I understand this feeling. And it was the comedy version of that. And I was absolutely in the right place, especially at the right time. Because I think it out, I think the theater clearly outgrew itself and lost a lot of that edge. Mm Mm-hmm. But I was there at the right time in the right place with the right attitude, so got lucky. So how does the Chris Gethard public access show differ from the show that you were doing at UCB? Or was it kind of just a a direct line? No, it was not. It's so funny you bring this up because I was just catching up with my buddy Will Hines the other day about it. Um, the Gethard show at UCB... I just found out that the guy who used to make video for us has almost all of them on video. Oh, wow. And he was like, we should do something and like put out like a best of or make like an hour long like doc about what it was like back then. I was like, that's amazing. People would be shocked. That show was dark. Mm-hmm. It was pretty violent at times. I once choked my friend Don Finelli on stage and he passed out and the whole room went silent because they thought I killed him legitimately. Oh, shit. Um, yeah, it was. We'd been doing a bit where we were seeing who could hold their head underwater in these buckets long enough, and then he and I got in a fight. And I had been doing a lot of jujitsu at the time, and I put him in a chokehold, uh-huh. and he'd just been holding his breath for so long that I put the chokehold on him, just and right he just away. dropped to the floor. Oh, it's terrifying. We were mean to each other. The main four people were myself, Don, Will, and Shannon. Anybody who knows the public access show will remember Shannon. Mm-hmm. Bethany was actually the stage manager of the show. And I said, you're really funny. You got to be on the show. If you're going to be stage manager, you're doing it on stage. So they remember Bethany, totally different role. And yeah, we would do these things, electrocuting each other on stage. We did a thing. Oh my God. We did a thing called the Pissy Pants Challenge where we all wore diapers. And and the whole idea was whoever pisses themselves the most on stage wins. We weigh the diapers at the end of the night. We did a thing called the telethon of shame where 
I mean, I will say we raised nine thousand dollars for the March of Dimes mm-hmm. in tribute to my friend who lost a baby. Mm-hmm. Like we nine grand in an hour long show, not bad yeah. for a bunch of like underground comedy kids. That being said, we auctioned off shameful events. We had a friend of mine who he he placed a hot dog in another friend's ash cheeks. <laughs> And ate the hot dog. Like he wiped a friend's asshole down with witch hazel to sanitize it and then ate a hot dog out of his asshole. Another guy drinking piss on stage. Another guy who shaved his pubes and put glue on his face and made a pube. I was hosting the show naked by the end of the night. It was just let's auction off shame. The auction, the telethon of shame. Funny enough, the first time that I ever actually spoke directly to my wife, she was friends with all the guys in the band because um, Mikey was the drummer in her, her band, The Unlovables, mm-hmm. and I, I was a huge fan of The Unlovables, and they used to invite her, and I was so intimidated. And she told me, like, they used to sneak her in because the show was sold out, and I'm naked on stage just, like, cupping my junk, and I turned around, saw her, and I went, oh, no, it's oh, no. you. And that's when she, like, realized I was a fan. <laughs> but, yeah, the show was kind of, like, dark and extreme and violent and, and less positive and hopeful, but... You know, when we got to the public access studio and we started taking calls, I realized, oh, there's people out there. And I think I had maybe moved to a new mental phase of life. I had been in therapy for a while. I was less interested in like beating myself for other people's amusement. Although there's certainly many elements of that there with public access, but it was the interactivity. It was realizing, oh, there's like 15-year-olds calling. There's college kids calling there's like other fucked up artists calling you start to feel it spread oh we just got a call from canada tonight what the hell is that about Mm. you know and then by the end one of our regular callers is from sweden college from brazil we filmed our comedy central pilot and i remember the network they didn't pick it up but they're like what's going on like this studio audience somebody flew from honolulu a girl flew from brazil people flying from san francisco people like strangers who didn't know each other road tripping from Ohio to come. I'm like, yeah, like we built the thing. Like it's, I know it does not make sense to you as like a TV executive, but like you can't fuck with the idea. Like we built the thing. Uh Unfortunately, the thing is understood almost purely by people you do not understand. So Mm -hmm. that's going to make it an uphill climb for us, which it always did. But we took it further than anyone thought we would. So, I mean, nine years you were on the air? From the start of UCB until the end. The first one was November 20, uh, November 2009. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did the first ever episode on stage. And then we got canceled in 2018. So I always laugh about that because I'm like you know 10 is 10 years of doing the same thing is such a nice victory and i crapped out at like nine years and three months perfect that's very (laughs) on brand for me get right there right to the edge of the milestone and then let's crap out well i told i told you last time we talked and speaking of like times where like your your work has done a lot for me but that interview that you did with tom sharpling right after it was over i that's a i don't listen to a lot of interviews over and over again but that's one that just oh like, that's interesting i will tell you i've never gotten back i've never gone back and listened to it 
Um, He's such a fan of yours. And I of him, yeah. And uh, a, another Jersey guy who built mm-hmm. something rock solid in a very weird way as an outsider. Like, There's a reason why I think he and I have leaned on each other, but... I will, I will say, it's funny, you just, I think you probably just saw me on the Zoom start to get a little choked up, which is that one thing that people do not realize, uh, that I, I don't really, I can't really speak to the specifics of to this day, is that from season one of Cable forward, I was actually, there was actually a, a lot of scary stuff happening in my family, in my real life, hmm. uh, medical stuff. Really scary, sad stuff. Yeah. And it took the wind out of my sails. And uh, that's why I'm, I, I, I'm a little scared to go back and like read the stuff I said right when the show ended and talk to Tom because, or listen to the Tom thing because it was just this like, I always feel bad because I think a lot of the fans are like, you sold out and then you gave up on it. And I'm like, well, we sold out. I think probably sold out as responsibly as anyone could have in our situation. Like we sold out the right way. There's a reason we were the lowest rated show at the history of true TV. It's because we, <laughs> we didn't bend all the way for him, but I didn't give up on it. Uh, life, life crushed me for a couple of years there, real life. Oh. And, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't, I could not get yelled at anymore. I'll never forget. We had a notes call. We did an episode where I was locked in a cage, and if I couldn't get out by the end of the episode, a hundred pounds of human hair would fall on me. And uh, this note's called, we turned in an outline and they yelled at us for two hours, telling us, here's the way the hair should fall in the cage. I'm like, I can't take two hours of notes about what's the best way for a hundred pounds of human hair to fall from the ceiling. Not when I need to get off this fucking phone and go take care of my family, Mm -hmm. you know, like... And they just made me, I don't want to say they made me not care because I cared immensely, but they made me make a real hard choice on what my priorities were. And I've always felt bad that a lot of the fans who stuck with it forever from start to finish felt like I gave up because I wish there was a way to just tell them like, ah, I didn't give up. Like I took it on the chin. I took it on the chin hard and I was always someone who, legendarily could kind of get back up and I just could not get back up from it after a certain point. And unfortunately it crossed over with those years that we had the show on cable, but that's how real life goes sometimes. Yeah. And nine years, that's a long time to be doing any one thing. And I don't know how often you get messages like that now, but it's always tough when something ends and you, it is, you, it is. You miss yeah. it and you want to be mad or you lash out. It's also, it, I tell you what, it's it's funny too because we were on cable and they bought the show they bought. And we're still doing ideas like drop 100 pounds of human hair. But I look back now, now that the emotional, you know, it was emotional to stop doing that show. It was named the Chris Gethard show. It, it was a beautiful thing for a lot of people. I'm proud of it. But. Now that the emotional turmoil is over, I look back and go, well, 2016 is when Beautiful Anonymous showed up and it exploded instantly. Mm -hmm. And I go, there's a part of me that initially was kind of like, I barely, I've barely worked on this thing. And the Gethard show, I've slaved over it for years to get it where it's going. 
And I look back now with the perspective of time, I go, oh, I was 36. I was 29 when I started The Gethard Show. That was the idea that was most honest when I was 36. Mm. If we were still on public access where the show could just evolve week to week, follow kind of me, the show would have looked so different. But on cable, it got locked into the track of what it was. That's what they bought. Let's keep it going. But I look back, I go, oh, right. That's why career suicide happened when I was 37. That's why Beautiful Anonymous happened when I was 36. Because I was a different human being making different things. And the Gethard show was this weird anomaly that refused to die. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it was actually 20... 2016 my manager told me he goes look i know you you're not going to do this but as a manager and he's a friend i've been working with him now for 14 years like he's a good guy he's like as someone whose job it is to look out for you you should not you should be walking away from the gethard show like beautiful anonymous exploded career suicide came out and then i was in this movie that mike berbiglia directed and wrote where i got a ton of hype from Mm -hmm. it he's like now is the time to move on you got more hype than you've ever had. You've had three things explode this year. Right. You shouldn't. You shouldn't be on True TV right now. <laughs> fucking giving away cars that don't work from a junkyard. <laughs> like it's time to strike with this other side of you. And I actually think it probably did cut off the momentum those things could have had. But I had. I could not. I had to take that one to the end. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about developing career suicide into what it became. You're so open with your story, but I mean, you've got to be aware that of the fact that even like your ideal audience for the topic of mental health and depression and suicide, they're still going to be expected expecting entertainment. Yeah. And that was the balance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As far as development goes, in 2014, I spent most of that year opening for Mike Birbiglia. Um, I'd been doing comedy for 14 years, but not much stand-up. Stand-up started more around like 2007, 8, 9. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty good already, but I knew I'd learn a lot from Birbiglia. And we would be touring the Midwest and driving, you know, okay, the show in Des Moines is over. Now we got to drive overnight to Wichita. Uh There's not much to see on that drive, let alone at night. So you just shoot the shit, tell stories. That's like part of the joy of being on the road. And he once asked me, you know, you've you've talked a lot about the depression stuff. You don't hide it. What's like the darkest it ever got? What's the stuff you've never talked about? like on stage or on your public access show. I told him that story from career suicide about, about crashing that car and then the guy trying to fight me and then this other guy saving me and then saying a bunch of racist shit. Mm -hmm. And Mike looks at me. That was a story. Probably half a dozen people knew at that point in my life, including like medical professionals, you know? And I tell him this story and he just looks at me and goes, it's hilarious. Tell it on stage. And I was like, no, 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 no. But he kind of called bullshit. He he was like, look, I don't think there's anybody else who can tell that story on stage and get a laugh out of it. I think you can. And he kind of put the fire to my feet of like, if you can get a laugh out of that and you're choosing not to, 
what are you kind of pretending to be an artist at that point? You know, I'm like, yeah. So I started trying it and uh, developing it was so hard because like you said, it has to be entertaining and uh, comedians know how to bomb. You're never going to get good if you don't start to embrace the fact that you bomb mm-hmm. and bombing sucks, mm-hmm. but you can develop scar tissue. But bombing for like an hour straight when you're telling people about like the worst moments of your life and they've showed up and given you $8 to come into the basement of Union Hall in Brooklyn because they want you to entertain them. And instead you're just like, so here's how I shit blood a bunch. Here's how Adderall made me come water. I also tried to kill myself. Here's a manic episode I had. Like... When that is met with silence, it was it was a type of bombing that I'd never felt before. Um, but what would happen that was so incredible was it would bomb, and then invariably I'd hear like two people spread out laughing. And I'm telling you, it like clockwork. Those two people would wait after the show mm-hmm. and be like, "Oh yeah, like I went to a mental hospital four years ago. Like that shit was funny, man." Or people going. Uh, like the real turn it took in development. Actually, the show in Chicago I did that you weren't at, I started doing Q&As after the show. When, when Apatow started getting interested, he was like, do Q&As after that show. It's going to open your eyes. It's going to tell you what you need to write and adjust. And I remember in Chicago, someone telling me, standing up at a mic in a Q&A and saying, you know, my brother killed himself. And... I've never understood how he could ever do it. And I just watched your show and I don't, I don't think it's exactly the same, but I have a little bit more understanding right now of how he could have gotten there. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I just go, boom, that's when it took a turn where I go, okay, this show is not for depressed people. This is for the person who is the roommate or coworker of the depressed people. This show is about getting how do you, that was the real challenge when the whole thing is that you are mentally not totally rooted in a reality, mm-hmm. whether that's because your anxiety is out of control and you're convinced life is worse than it is, whether you're in a manic episode where things are actually, you're actually deceiving, you know, your brain is deceiving you into unreality. How do you explain the mental being of being rooted in a, a non-reality to people who can't fathom that because they haven't been through it and make it funny. That unlocked everything. Uh, I remember one night in Brooklyn, a girl waiting for me. She goes, I dated a guy who was bipolar and I kind of ghosted on him and I feel awful now. I go, well, first of all, don't. Cause as someone who's had like manic episodes and depressive fits, like we don't make it easy. Like mm-hmm. I got girlfriends from my past who are not fans of mine. Yeah. So you're within your rights. And she goes, but I just want to tell him that like, I realize now he wasn't being selfish. I go, cool. She goes, what should I do? I go, I don't know. Like maybe text him or call him and just say that. And she took off running up the stairs. No joke. And I go, okay, that's what it is. It's for the people who don't, it's for the people who don't get it. It's not a show for the people who do get it. It's a show so that they, in my mind, I'm going, the best thing that could ever happen 
is somebody goes, hey, dad, come here and watch this thing. Mm. And they sit him down. That to me is the ideal. Somebody goes, okay, your dad who never got it, who's calling you a baby, watches this and goes, oh, oh you need a doctor. So that, that was the motivating, that was the light switch that turned on. I remember Ira Glass actually came and gave me notes on it, which is so kind Whoa. of him. I'd done a few pieces on This American Life, and I think Mike told him I was working on it. And I'll never forget him going, he's like, I like your show. He's like, but it has this problem. And I go, what? And he goes, well, narratively, you're the main character, but you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, it just makes it very frustrating as a, a viewer of the show because you should be learning your lesson. And you're not learning your lesson and growing. So it, it actually started to make me feel really frustrated as like a viewer of theater. Uh-huh. And I, I was looking at it, and obviously his opinion, I take it really seriously. And then I go, oh, wait. I go, Ari, you don't, you've never dealt with this stuff, have you? He goes, no. And I go, the fact that I can't learn from it and grow and do it again, and sometimes even worse, I go, that's why it's an illness. And he looked at me and went, oh. <laughs> and I was like, okay, th- this is the thing I need to make sure this show explains. Mm-hmm. That was such a huge moment yeah. of like, oh, that's why it's an illness. And watching him go, right, right. It's not your fault if you relapse with cancer, and it's not your fault if you have a second manic episode that's worse than the first one, even though you, the first one you knew was fucked up. Mm-hmm. So anyway, again, another long answer. I hope it has some interest to anyone. You just you just dropped this uh, commentary that you got from Ira Glass. Yeah, it was so the, nice of him. Oh, that was nice. I, I got lucky. I mean, between Mike Birbiglia, Ira Glass, and Judd Apatow all giving me advice on that show, I owe a lot of people. A lot, also, a name you might be surprised to hear, Colin Quinn. Colin Quinn actually gave me some advice on how to make some of the hardest jokes work. And uh, he is Joke Yoda. That guy. Oh, yeah? Is. Oh, my God. So interesting. So there's a section of the show that I struggle with today where I quote someone else who used the N-word to me. Mm -hmm. I'm quoting someone else. Mm -hmm. And I, if you watch the show, I quickly point, I quickly say, it's not necessarily a punchline in, if in any sense it's super dark where I talk about how I crashed a car on purpose and then the guy who saved me from the situation called someone else the N-word and then I say oh I thought the car crash was the worst moment of my life saying this racist asshole has somehow made this day even worse mm-hmm. he's kicked the situation even further downhill and it's not an easy word to say and I wasn't always comfortable and someone saw it when I did it off Broadway and during the show got up and started yelling at me. And then the crowd starts booing. I turn around, I'm going, we're not going to boo this woman of color for being mad that I said the M word. Like, so I'm defending her. The crowd's going, stop, mm-hmm. it's theater. Mm-hmm. Let him say his piece. And I'm going, no, 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 no. Like I'm the one who she's mad at and I'm mortified by that. Yeah. And I'm filled with panic and shame because of that. And then I'm also going, we're not booing her. Mm-hmm. And, um, she and I got on the phone. She had some points that I thought were really, really valid. There were some other things. Like she had been texting during the show. Like that's it. She had been texting during the show and I, I kind of stopped and asked her to stop. And I was a little snarky because I was a comedian. She's like, you're going to yell at me. You said the N word. And that's why the crowd was mad. They're like, you're the lady who's been texting and your phone light's been on. I'm like, guys, these are separate issues at this point. Stop. And then Colin Quinn had seen the show. 
And I know Colin, we're friendly. We have um, some f- mutual friends who we're both very tight with. And my phone rings one day and I pick up. I don't know who it is. Hey, Gethard, it's Colin Quinn. I heard about that happened. That sucks, man. That's really hard. I bet you're overthinking it. Let's fix the joke. Uh-huh. I'm like, what? You just heard about this and you're you're calling me random? He's like, yeah. Uh, it was our friend JD, our mutual friend. He's like, JD told me that went down and shook you up. He's like, look, it, it, it's a really funny story and it needs that moment. You're saying it. The, you're saying the right thing. Let's figure out how to say it the right way. And I think when it got to HBO, I think by the time it got there, I had figured out how to make it very, very clear. I don't think this is funny. I actually think this is awful. And it's a story about how, how when your life is feeling awful, it can snowball so horribly. He helped me fix that. Yeah. That's a that's a cool look behind the curtain, huh? Yeah, it's, that's such a cool moment in the, or I think it's I maybe mean, cool isn't the right word, but it's a really important moment in the show where you address the audience by saying, "I'm I'm being honest." That's, that's a, this is a hard word to say, but I said it because that's what happens, and now you know that what I'm telling you all is very very real. I think that that's hugely. Important I think so. Thing. I mean, also, you and I are two white guys, so let's have the caveat that whatever we say, other people can listen to it and have a different opinion. Yes, and I of and and they and if people are mad, they should be. And I'm happy to hear it out, take it on the chin. Always have been, but yeah, I, there's like an underlying message to that whole show, which is for some people, we spend a lot of our lives thinking that the premise of life is that it's fucked up. I watched my brother get physically fucking brutalized throughout school. Hmm. I watched kids in our neighborhood treat him like dog shit. They treated me like dog shit. I became a very angry kid. People, I think, are oftentimes surprised here. I was a violent kid growing up. Um, In the New Jersey podcast, you hear us talk about it a lot. All three of us are going, for some reason, our hometown in that stretch in the 90s Fucking fights. There were gang fights in my school. Mm. There were racial fights between different groups of people. It was fucked up. It was fucked up. It was hard to see. It was scary. My guard was up for so much of my life. I was not I was not able to let my guard down and start taking things with like I treated everything with cynicism. People had to prove to me that they deserved my trust. I would actively be I would have like venomous things to say to people to kind of keep them at arm's length. And, and that would only stop if I felt like they had proved I could trust them. It's a fucked up way to live. And my whole thought process, and I think for a lot of people, you have these experiences where you go, the world's fucked up and awful. And by quoting that guy in that moment in that show, I think one of the underlying reasons to say it was to go, I was someone who viewed my life as awful. And you know what? Life can be awful and the world can prove its awfulness to you over and over and over again in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And what an awful fucking thing to hear on an awful day where I did an awful thing, you know, mm-hmm. what an awful thing to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I want to kill myself. Somebody just helped me because they're racist. Yeah. Spent my fucking college years like feeling insanely lonely being unmedicated reaching out to people i reached out to someone reached out to my ra told her literally once said to an ra 
on AIM, Instant Messenger. That's how we communicated back then because I was scared to say face-to-face telling her, I'm having this weird situation. I think I'm going crazy. She goes, what do you mean? I go, my thoughts move really fast now. I often feel like I'm listening to my thoughts instead of thinking them. Mm. Now, if a 19-year-old kid says that, that's a, the warning lights should go off. I feel like I'm hearing my thoughts, not thinking. Yeah. I look back, realize I was slipping hard mentally. Now, back then, the school clearly didn't train the RAs in this shit because she went, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, maybe talk to somebody. Like, mm-hmm. now I think they probably pick up the phone. They go, hey, why don't you sit in this room and we'll get you where you need to go? Felt fucking abandoned, alone in this awful town. My roommates hated me. Spent a lot of my life feeling fucked up. And life can reiterate. When you are convinced life is fucked up, it's very easy to find the examples over and over again that prove how fucked up it is. And that word said on that day, I can point to it and say that legitimately, I don't know if life ever felt more fucked up than standing next to a totaled car that I crashed and then the driver tried to fight me and then that guy, the guy who got him to calm down then said that word. Hmm. I think it is the isolated, however long it takes to say the N-word, maybe what, three quarters of a second? Mm -hmm. That's the most fucked up three quarters of a second of my entire life. And that's the point I was hoping to get across with that show. Um, not to get a laugh, not to sensationalize it, but just to say, you want to talk about rock bottom, yeah. Look at, be staring at a totaled car where you're wondering how you are not bleeding to death on this man's lawn. Oh, and then that man says one of the most fucked up words in the English language. That was the hope to get it across, but I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's a hilarious special. Everybody should watch it. <laughs> Ah, barrel of laughs. <laughs> it has some laughs Dude, in it. Dude, it's though. got that some was... fucking great laughs. Thank you. Thank you. Was that tough to follow? Was that a difficult one to well, record your next comedy? Let's be album? honest. I mean, let's be honest. Is it tough to follow? Because I haven't followed it. You don't count Taylor Ham, Egg and Cheese as a follow? I love it. I love Taylor Ham, Egg and Cheese. But psychologically, is there probably a part of me going, let me make this very boutique thing that's focused in a way that's, I think, very funny, but has a hook, has a gimmick, maybe you could even say. Mm-hmm. I have been, I have spent that career suicide 2017, Beautiful Anonymous 2016, Gethard Show canceled 2018. It's 2021. I haven't made anything that stands up to those. And I'm 40. And in 2011, when I went on public access, someone saying, I'm a depressed person who's willing to talk about it, standing out, actively standing outside of the infrastructure of entertainment, felt, felt, mm, Aggressive felt like it had a point to it. Now a forty-year-old white guy, I don't think I get to be the underground underdog anymore. I don't get. There's other people that angry youth are embracing, and they should. Mm-hmm. So not only was it hard to follow, I am in the process of it being hard to follow, 
And I am very honestly wondering if I am on the decline and I'm figuring out how to come to grips with that and be okay with it. Because every artist gets there, right? Yeah. I might be getting there. That's okay. I'd like to think I got some gas left in the tank, but it's been three years and I haven't been able to find it. That's the honest answer. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I I mean, I put out a book. I'll give you full disclosure because this is so absurd that I find it funny. Uh I wrote a book and full disclosure, I haven't talked about this publicly. They paid me an amount of money that allowed me to cover medical bills that had mounted into an insurmountable level. Mm -hmm. But they wanted it to be a self-help book. And I'm going, I don't think that's really my thing. Like where that's what the imprint is. And it was the, it was the first choice that I ever made in my entire career where the money was the dominating factor. I'm not proud of that. The book is good. I like the one before it better. People get stuff out of the book and say they enjoy it. I'm happy about that. It always has a little bit of a twinge where I'm like, I missed the mark. Now, I wrote a book. I had a TV show and an HBO special. They paid me a lot of money. And my understanding is that that book sold, if I remember right, less than 2,000 copies. Like, that. oh, you're holding it up. And I think, <laughs> but you've read it. I'm like, that book's fine, but it doesn't have the heart my other shit has. Well... So I, I, it was that was a little bit of a whiff. Um, Ugh, gave something away with that one. What's next? I tried the CGP thing. Tried to bring back some public access stuff with new comedians. Didn't click with the people like the old one did. It's interesting times. It's, What's next for your boy Gethard? I don't know, but it might be it. I might this goose might be cooked. No, who knows? I, who knows? I think that. You got New Jersey, and it's always there. And I think that this yeah. pod's good shit, man. I really well, I feel really good. It. I I will tell you legitimately, it's the first thing since the Gethard show got canceled where I kind of cackle with glee when I think about it, and I get this like manic excitement of like, oh, this is fucking cool. So mm-hmm. I do feel good about the New Jersey podcast, and it's also the first thing in years, in, in about three years, where I go, this feels like the first thing in a while where I go. If eight people listen to this, I will keep fighting for it because I love it so much. And I haven't felt that in a while. And it's a really good thing to feel. Hell yeah. I hope people like it. Even if you're not from New Jersey. Let me be clear. If you're not from New Jersey, but you just kind of like fucked up insane stories that friends tell to each other, that's ultimately what it is. So check it out. (laughs) I was listening to the first episode and uh, the phone call from Chrissy Boombots was on. Oh, my partner's like that guy just encompasses everything that I think of when I think of New Jersey. The patron saint of New Jersey, Chrissy <laughs> Boombots. He's never called back. I want to find out who he is. Hey, Chris, it's Chrissy Boombots. How you doing, buddy? Next time you're in town, we'll get a hot dog. I'm me. Salud. <laughs> Oh God, Chrissy Boombots, I love you. Actually, when we got that voicemail, I like sent it to all the guys, and I was like. I think we're I think we're on to something with this show. I think we're on to something. We got Chrissy Boombots now. Oh yeah. And we got some good episodes coming. Some things I'm excited about and um people are starting to really realize that I want them to participate and those voicemails are getting so funny and just today we put out one 
we got this beautiful series of voicemails from a girl who used to live in a punk house in New Brunswick who just read a text chain of all her punk house roommates. Uh-huh. They had seen me. I posted a thing. What's the most fucked up thing you ever did or saw in New Brunswick? And they just all started blowing up this text chain. And it was just her reading it for about seven and a half minutes. And it's so funny and so fucked up. <laughs> like the shit they're talking about. I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. So we just put that out. I was like, how? We can't include this in the New Brunswick episode. It's too long. Let's just put it out as its own thing. And God damn, does it make me laugh. And I had nothing to do with it except I set up the voicemail line. <laughs> it's beautiful. Dude, thank you so much for, for coming thank on. Thank you. Thanks for letting me ramble and be emo. And I just tried to be very honest. And I hope none of it sounded complaining, especially the whole idea of like, am I past my prime? I want to be clear with people. Like, if that's the case, like, I'm actually really fascinated by that. And I actually think it's kind of beautiful. And I'm not complaining. Yeah. I hope it's clear. I'm not really trying to complain. I'm going, it's, it's, there's anxiety there. But also, like, it means I get to take stock of the stuff I've done. And I'm proud of the stuff I've done. And, I have a son now and maybe it needs to be less about me anyway. And I actually am really fascinated to see what happens when, when you go away, what happens? So I'm not, I'm not trying to complain so much as I'm really fascinated. Anyway, thanks for letting me get that. You're heading into the (laughs) eighties. A little bit, a little bit. Let's dive back and just get nostalgic with my high school friends and, uh, and enjoy life. Maybe that's the other thing. Maybe I can chill out and enjoy life instead of just fighting so hard for so many things. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It's never been in my nature to just chill out and enjoy. So we'll see. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. All right, folks. Check out Chris Gethard online. ChrisGeth.com. Subscribe to New Jersey is the World and Beautiful Anonymous wherever you get this podcast. BetterYetPod.com. BetterYetPodcast.BandCamp.com Pledge to the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash BetterYetPodcast. We will see you next week. Thank you, friends. Thank you, friends.